my name's Tom Clark. Uh, I'm a lecturer in research methods in the Department of Sociology uh, at the University of Sheffield. My name is Rita Hordoshi, and I am currently working as a lecturer in education at the University of Manchester. I used to be working in Sheffield <coughs> in that unit, um, WPREU, Vipri. And today we're going to talk about um, the research teaching nexus, and that's basically the relationship between research and teaching. And we're going to explore how students experience that across uh, their degree programme. Uh, the paper that we're actually going to give is part of a, a bigger project that we've, we've run, um, where we followed uh, 40 students for four years, interviewing them once a year, as they moved into their degree programme, um, through it, and then out it. Um, and we've had various different um, outputs for it, and, and this is one of them. Um, but before we kind of detail the research teaching nexus, uh, the student tracking project, and what we found, um, I want to tell you a little bit about where I was coming from in attempting to make a contribution to the, the special issue. Um, and as I say, I, I'm a lecturer in research methods. I love teaching research methods. It's about finding things out. It's about actually engaging with, with the world. Uh, I, I love my professional identity. But I also recognise that my students don't necessarily see research methods like that. Um, particularly the ones who are kind of at level one, who have come out of A level, maybe done psychology or sociology, um, and their understanding of research methods is that it's dry, it's dull, it's often taught in a very didactic way, um, it uh, deals with kind of technical definitions and trite arguments about advantages and disadvantages. So I have to do something to try and energise them and get them interested in that. And my opening gambit on day one of level one is to introduce them to the work of Harry Frankfurt. And I don't know whether any of you have actually read the work of Harry Frankfurt. It's amazing stuff. And he's written a wonderful essay on bullshit. And it's a thoroughgoing philosophical analysis of bullshit. And to summarise his argument, he thinks that bullshitters are very dangerous people because they have no regard for the truth or what might be false. Yep, they just don't care about it. What they care about is persuading and getting you to agree with them. Um, liars um, are, are dangerous people, but actually liars do believe in truth and falsity because liars are trying to hide the truth. That means that you can uncover the truth and expose their lies. Bullshitters just don't care. They just bullshit their way through life, trying to get people to agree with them, uh, and if they don't, they kind of just bullshit until they do. Now, you don't need to look very far to find some wonderful examples of this um, in contemporary society. Don't look at me, right? somewhere over there. Um, and uh, the, the way that I sell research methods to students is, is I say that actually research methods and being able to find stuff out yourself actually means that you're not held hostage to the bullshitters of the world. Because you can go out there and you can negotiate kind of uh, knowledge terrains effectively and innovatively to actually work stuff out for yourself. So research methods isn't kind of boring, I understand why they think it is, it's actually emancipatory in that it allows people to actually not be held hostage to the bullshitters and people like me. Um, and I was, I was thinking about uh, Elizabeth's comment about kind of breaking students apart and then putting them back together. 
I do that on day one, and then I follow it up in the same lecture where I systematically break down notions of everyday realism. Uh, so by the end of that hour, introduction to um, Research Methods 101, I think I've successfully broken them. Um, but the other driver to this um, paper uh, that's been kind of mentioned uh, in a few places, there's a, if you sit in kind of teaching committees at uh, school, department, faculty level, there's an increasing rhetoric around research-led teaching or research-informed teaching, research-based education, this type of stuff. And to be clear, I am absolutely and utterly on board with that. I agree with it entirely. My whole teaching practice is devoted to inquiry-based learning, um, a kind of uh, a cons constructive alignment at a programme level. I design research methods from a programme level approach. I'm absolutely on board with getting students to do research. But that's not the way it's being used in these committees and in these meetings. In these committings, committees and meetings, how it's being used is in marketing, to actually use the status of research to sell to students uh, in terms of learning and teaching. Um, or it's used to justify people carrying on research in the face of very high tuition fees, which are in some way, shape or form, subsidising their research. And this doesn't get mentioned in those meetings, but I'm really quite worried about how research-led teaching is being used. Um, and this, the, the, this paper and the opportunity to submit to the special issue was an opportunity to work through some of that, uh, because we knew that we had some interesting data about the research-teaching nexus. Um, so that was what was driving it, a little bit more about what research-teaching nexus is. So I don't think any of the podcasts so far had that many bullshits in them, but we'll, we get, got to this point as well, which is great. Um, so in terms of the context for the paper, we use the research and teaching nexus literature as the frame. And we've been, you know, these are the sort of strands in the literature that are really, really crucial. It started in the kind of 80s, 90s, when people have looked at what the relation is between research outputs, uh, quality of research outputs, numbers of research outputs, quantity, and teaching evaluations um, of the same staff. And what has been found is that there is very little positive um, relation between the two, or at, and it's generally just basically non-existent, which kind of questions what we generally think about this, this notion of, you know, if you're a really, really good researcher, you must be a great teacher, but we all know all of those people who aren't either, either way. Um, so that's one of the trends of literature, looking at the association between research outputs and uh, teaching evaluations. Another one is looking at the experiences of staff um, of their different roles and how they kind of, what their attitudes are to their different roles in terms of both research and teaching and how they kind of marry them up and how they work around them. Um, but also the attitudes of students towards staff research and this sort of research-based um, learning and teaching. Um, and it's really interesting to see how uh, a lot of the staff, uh, sorry, the student research kind of talks about how students don't feel that they're actual stakeholders in the research. They feel that they, this is distracting from, you know, the teaching that should be happening, that staff research is important, all right, but I kind of want to have the staff time too, which probably is familiar to most of us working in HE. Um, and then there is a strand of the literature that looks at the institutional and different institutional types and also different disciplines and how the research and teaching relationship works across um, these places and spaces. Um, one of the things that 
often happens is that the research and teaching nexus is treated unproblematically. Can't pronounce that word. I'm sorry. Um, but Verum and Trawler kind of talk about how it is an inherently political thing, this link between um, research and teaching. Um, there are a lot of assumptions that are taken for granted. We think that this is a positive thing. Research-based education is a positive thing. Research-linked uh, education is, um, is a positive thing. Without the recognition that these, um, the outcomes for students are multiple, and we can't take it for granted that it will be positive for everyone, and the, the issues that it poses very rarely actually are taken into account. Um, it's suggested here as well that the um, research and teaching nexus is not purely a question of pedagogy um, that can be just enhanced and we can just come up with a better form, a better model. But we have to understand the processes that um, students go through. And I think we had, you know, the previous two presentations precisely fit into, it, in, into, this, um, into this strand. Um, and then they also talk about the different dysfunctions, and I think that these are again very, very, you know, we, we know all about this, um, where the learners do research, but because of the modularized system, there isn't really a space to follow that through properly. It's kind of very bitty, it's the small teaching box, uh, blocks just don't lend themselves to a good in-depth research methods process. The rewards with research are substantive, whereas for teaching it's uh, not that often um, that good teachers are rewarded. Um, the issues with uh, having the learners themselves doing research, but in this context it kind of sometimes happens that students are basically unpaid research assistants rather than um, actual constituents, actual stakeholders within the research. Um, when embedding it into the, into the curriculum, um, <coughs> the transmission of essential knowledge can be poorly implemented. And they also talk about how the research culture influences the teaching and learning, um, where yeah, research is often prioritised over teaching, and those who are non-researchers become the teachers that deliver, uh, where all of this kind of starts to find itself in a sort of schism between the two. Um, the... There is, a, there is a drive for research churn where you just push research out and there's very, very little space to intellectually reflect on, on the outcomes of research and actually how, how can we bring it into, into our teaching. And there's often, in some spaces, the teaching taken over with very large cohorts of uh, students, undergraduate or postgraduate, where the quality of pedagogical research um, is, isn't that high and isn't, that, isn't appreciated in that space. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm going to talk about the the project that we've brought for you. Um, so this has been um, a postdoctoral project project that I led on with the support of Tom and our former colleague Dan. Um, it was a longitudinal project of student experiences. We have followed through the 2013 cohort. The original focus was on finance, student finance. We've written about that at length elsewhere. Here we're not going to concentrate on that aspect that much. Um, we try to understand the student experiences in that context of the higher fees. This is the second generation of undergraduates who were paying that higher fee in, in England. Um, we gathered qualitative data and tried to contextualise that with the administrative information about that cohort of 2013. Um, and we followed through a 40, 
40 students throughout their undergraduate degrees. The, um, we use the maximum variation sampling, um, both, case and, both at case and unit level. We picked two or three departments in each of the five faculties to be able to say something about different types of disciplines and different types of um, knowledge production processes. And the sample has been balanced between, uh, in, in terms of gender, ethnicity, um, age, as well as income. And we have a better understanding of the, of the poorest 10% of students, but here we are not talking about that, which is an interesting question, and I'm happy to return to that uh, notion in itself. Um, there you go. Yeah, and we interviewed students about five different areas of their lives. Um, so it's academic learning and teaching, social life, health and well-being, careers and employability and finance. And very early on it became quite clear that research um, was a key part of their experiences <coughs> around um, learning and teaching. Um, so we began to, as we moved through um, their student life cycle with them, we began to tailor specific questions about how they saw research in the context of learning and teaching. Um, and we, we analysed it using a fairly simple kind of thematic analysis. Um, but as I say, quite early on, we noticed that there were patterns um, emerging, regardless of discipline, in terms of how they moved through the research teaching nexus. Um, and this is a wonderful example of someone at the end of that process reflecting on how it's changed them, basically. How it changed, I don't know how to describe it. I'm not the same person I was when I first started, um, personality-wise, but I've got so much more self-confidence in me as well, which I've never had, and I've learned so much over the past three years. I've changed massively. I myself can notice that, when, uh, that I'm not the same person that I was when I first started this degree. So the students were transformed in terms of their engagement with learning and teaching and, and research, or, or some students was, and I want to stress this, we're going to present something of a model uh, to you, but I don't want you to take that as a normative model. Not all students moved through these phases of development, and there were some very good reasons why they didn't. Um, in some cases, they were actually taking agency and deciding not to move through them because it was not of interest, but in others, it was kind of more structural impediments, usually from the staff side. But I, I don't want to say that this is what all students should do, because there are some very good reasons why students might want to disengage um, with research teaching nexus. But when it works, and when it works well, these are the three phases that students kind of move through. Um, and we identified four different areas where they kind of move through those phases that are associated with their experiences of research in learning and teaching. Now, these phases don't necessarily map on to years one, two, and three. In some cases they did, but they didn't necessarily have to. Uh, in a few cases, um, they got on board very quickly, because they, usually because their course enabled them to. In other cases, it happened a bit more towards the back end of their degree. Um, but there was a definite sense that um, they did move through these different things. And to begin with the, the first phase, when they encounter research, they see uh, their discipline as being very broad. Um, and they're looking at different spots in not much depth, but they can identify the different types of things that their discipline is interested in by looking at the different bits of research that are in the field. And this very much kind of is kind of 
what my subject, Sociology 101, it's kind of almost a, a carousel of lecturers coming in, telling them bits of things about the subject, and they're getting a feel for what it is, um, and developing some knowledge of the kind of foundational stuff that's involved with the discipline. As I say, that their experience with researchers um, is usually quite di di distant. They don't really get to know them in any kind of personable way, usually because they're not encountering them in, in a kind of interpersonal way. It's, it's a lecture, they're up there in, in the kind of uh, lecture theatre, lecturers down there, runs off at the end. Uh, their seminars are typically characterised by teaching assistant, etc. So they don't have a good personal relationship um, with research or people who carry out research. <coughs> if they have any experience of kind of research practice, it tends to be incredibly guided in the series of tasks that they're given, that they run through, that when they do them all, they do a piece of research. It's quite a, quite a, a well-managed thing. And they're very much answering questions in terms of the, the mode of the, their learning. They're answering questions that have been specifically set for them. As they move into phase two, they begin to select the things that they're interested in. And there's usually, they take ownership about where they want their degree to go and how they want that to happen. So they begin to have things like favourite subjects, uh, or even ones that they dislike and they avoid. Um, they tend to begin to, because of that, they develop more personable relationships with people, uh, with researchers. They will have conversations about research with them, uh, mainly because they're being more selective. And there will be opportunities, you know, within much smaller lectures, etc., uh, to be actually engage on a personal level. So they'll get to know researchers. Um, in terms of uh, research practice, uh, it tends to be more problem-based. So they're no longer being managed through the, the system. Actually, they're being given a, a problem and they have to solve it themselves. Uh, so they have to take it forward and then put the things into place to actually... Uh, bring it to completion. Um, and there is, a, um, in terms of the, the nature of their learning, it becomes much more critical. In that critical reflection way, because they're doing problem-based stuff, they're being asked or they're developing the, the capacity to um, think critically about their practice and knowledge and maybe refine it as they move forward. So they're developing critical skills. And just as a side, when I was doing this, I was doing another <coughs> bit of work on uh, digital curriculums that kind of mirrors this three-phase approach. In this one, they're developing kind of abilities, uh, very specific skills. In this one, they're developing the capacity to apply those skills in different areas. And by the time they get to phase three, they're beginning to see themselves as whatever they are. They identify, they kind of identify themselves as researchers uh, or be someone who is critical etc. So that, that, that there's, this kind of mirrors that kind of relationship between ability, capacity and identity and they begin to recognise themselves or what their skills are. But in phase three when they get there um, they narrow very specifically um, and they become very interested in very kind of small things rather than kind of the big broad subject and that's par partly because they develop a lot of familiarity with what <coughs> the subject is and they make selections and then they actually focus on those selections. Because they've focused on something very specific they begin to develop more close relationships with um, researchers, often one-on-one -on -one, um, relationships. 
Um, and that might be dissertation supervision or something like that, but, or they might strategically kind of begin to associate themselves with particular people around the department because of their interest. Uh, their experience of research practice then becomes generative as well. They begin to be able to recognise where there are knowledge gaps and how they might then go and fill them in um, themselves. So that the, the nature of independent learning is much more now about discovering things for themselves that maybe aren't, weren't previously known about. It's about creativity. <coughs> it's about innovation. Um, and a good description of this is Amelia here with A-levels, you know exactly what you've got for the exam, you know the styles of questions, uh, what words you have to write. At uni, they say, well, learn about the liver, you go and read about the liver, and then you ask, answer questions about the liver. Uh, so you don't really know what you have to learn and in what depth, but in a way that's really good because you're actually understanding it more instead of just learning it parrot fashion, which is really good. So that's Amelia at level one. Aina, um, as she's moving through these phases of development, you get to know your lecturers and tutors uh, more because you're more based in the building where the department is. You also get to do a lot more practical stuff as well in terms of research. Last year it was just about listening uh, to lectures on research. Lizzie, so you struggle at first because you're like, well, I've got to find this bit of information. I had to really think about where I'm going to find it, uh, but now I know where everything is, so it's pretty easy. I didn't even know where most of the, my books were or what I needed, but now I do because they're becoming familiar with the lands or the knowledge-based landscape that they're operating within, and they have capacity to move about within it. But by the time they kind of, to borrow a term, actualize uh, in in their and move through that final phase of development. Um, you get to third year and you've taken one huge area of psychology and gone into a domain of that professor's area of research. They know more about it, they have more passion about it, they teach it better because it's something they're really interested in and I think basically in that sense you get to know them a bit more because you see their particular area of interest and what they can do and what they know. Uh, Mo, who was a bit more instrumental in terms of his approach, uh, I just basically looked at my grades from last year and thought, well, I do best in this area of science. I know I sound really mixed because he didn't have a good second year, because he didn't have the opportunities to take ownership over his learning. Um, but it doesn't irritate me like second year, where it was just writing down information. So there is indeed constraints on how students experience the, the research at Teaching Nexus, and we, we shouldn't think of it as purely positive. Um, Tom kind of alluded to most of these things already, but just to reiterate, um, some of these aspects relate to the diminishing interest in the, in the nature of research, where students will have different career goals, different, it, it feels like it's too much effort, or they can't really deal with the uncertainty of knowledge, um, and that sort of trial and error that research can sometimes be. So it's this epistemic uncertainty that we talked about earlier as well, that they just can't get on board with or don't want to get on board with and they have other <coughs> career aims anyway so it's they just like the research is not for me that's fine but this is this is a conscious choice rather than um an issue with the program itself or or the or the or this learning and teaching that they um that they have whereas insu insufficient sc scaffolding in terms of the research the process itself um in terms of the unconnected nature of the curricula in terms of the gaining competences for the process, that's when, that's when it's a bit more problematic and students kind of talk about how 
there isn't any way in which they are taught how to find that information, how to make sense of the information and create knowledge, as it were. Um, there is there's something about the distance between um, students and researchers, uh, students and research staff, where the ghost of, of the of the staff members looking at their own research distracts away from engaging with the students in a meaningful way, and they pick up on this very much. Um, uh, we'll see in a minute from Natasha on that. Um, in terms of the fourth aspect, there are issues around associated with the participation in Haiti in more general, this is like quite generic terms, where the differences um, in terms of student background might distract away from the potential engagement within AG and its structural inequalities that we can, we can, we can allude to here. We'll show you one student as well here. So Natasha is, wasn't a happy bunny. Um, she was quite adamant that her experiences were defined by the, by the nature of the institution. The fact that it was a red brick that was very much focused on research, we've got a reputation to uphold, so we can't possibly be supportive. And they weren't. She she found that the learning, her learning all the way through, wasn't scaffolded as much as it should have been. And in her third year, she finally found someone who she felt closer to, who was more supportive and more scaffolded the learning a lot more for her, and generally the the wider. Um, why the cohort, but it's really interesting how she says, and in other universities, this is not how it is, um, talking to other friends of hers who went to different universities. She's not looking for spoon feeding, but just help, some form of support. And um, it was really interesting that she talked about the distance from uh, research and staff, the status of research, but also the scaffolding, the lack of, complete lack of scaffolding. And she started to blame herself initially, but then started to blame the institution in later years. Whereas Sandra, on the other hand, um, similarly talks about the, the processes, the techniques that you use in science. Um, and she started to disengage. She originally thought that she's, she was going to go into lab work, to go into research more broadly. But then she decided that it wasn't the, the, the route for her. She couldn't really get on board with the techniques for that sort of work. And also the institution um, and the course she was on wasn't accredited for the sort of lab accreditation that she thought would be would be very very helpful um, so she she started to kind of disengage from that lab work from year one year two and by the time she finished she was like well I've done I've done science now I can go into something completely different and it was really really interesting to see how much she internalized this um, this process so instead of saying the the techniques weren't taught as I can learn or there was a distance between staff and students, and we know from other students on that same course who talked about that distance. She very much internalised the issues that she was facing, and she kind of thought about herself as a as a student who failed almost. Um, and she, uh, her and other students connected this partly to them being first generation in a higher education. So I think this is this is really really important to bear in mind that um, not all experiences are created equal. Mm, indeed, uh, to, to summarise that in relation to uh, the post-truth society, I think we can probably make uh, three points from the work we've done, really. Uh, and the first is that the research teaching nexus can be incredibly positive. It can be transformational for students. Um, it enhances their abilities, capacities and identities in all sorts of different ways. Um, and it's not necessarily the, the substantive knowledge that they gain from research. <laughs> 
actually. It's that research is a really good vehicle to help them develop, help themselves develop a number of different literacies. Uh, so things associated with becoming more digitally literate, critically literate, uh, perhaps uh, developing their uh, ideas about uh, and abilities around com communicating, etc. Um, lots of different aspects of the research process actually help them develop a wider, more uh, useful set of skills. Um, so, so they develop expertise in being able to find things out and they kind of, kind of self-identify as being able to find things out and they take active engagement with knowledge that they discover within the world and they, cr they critically reflect on both the substance but also the process of finding things out. And yes, there's critical reflection there, uh, but also it enables <coughs> them to be more independent, so they're not being held hostage to the bullshitters of this world. And the, these sorts of skills, uh, we think, are going to be ever more important, uh, given the context of a, a changing society. In the first instance, it's going to help combat some of that bullshit um, at a very low level. If we can get more students going through university, then and being more actively engaged and being more independent, they're going to be able to find things out and rebut specious arguments. Um, but in it, being able to find things out, you also get a more flexible and competitive um, workforce. And this is um, the graduate labour market is increasingly global, so it is increasingly competitive. So for, in order for individuals to stay kind of relevant on a, on a global scale, this, all this stuff is really useful because it helps them be flexible. And not least because uh, there is a general acceptance that artificial intelligence is going to completely change uh, the labour force. That flexibility helps, will help the graduates of the future to negotiate those changeable landscapes because they can do things for themselves, by themselves. And one day we might get to a, a situation where we have a, a research literacy amongst the general population where we can begin to actually have better civic and academic conversations. Um, I mean, that's probably our fault that that doesn't happen so much now. But if you kind of elevate that base, then there's more potential for kind of uh, collaboration. Having said all that, and I can't believe that I'm as wildly optimistic as I have been, um, there are some big problems. Um, the benefits of a, a kind of research-based or research-led education can't be assumed. It's not just a pedagogical tool that you pick up and you plonk in place and everything's rosy. Uh, it's exclusive as much as it's inclusive. Um, and there are very, some very good reasons why a student might not want to engage with it, but then there are a whole heap of problematic reasons of why they can't um, engage with it. So we need to be careful when we start kind of using these words like research-led teaching to make sure that they're meaningful and where they're used in context associated with kind of teaching and learning committees in our universities. Uh, we need to try and make sure that actually that is a meaningful imposition, not just a quick, easy fix for some manager who's ticking a box in their office and justifying their own job. Um, or by association, an academic who is kind of talking about the value of research because it enables them to do more research. Yeah? If we're going to seriously engage with research-led teaching, we need to do so meaningfully and reflectively. Thank you very much. Brilliant. <laughs>